Grace and peace. Good morning. It's good to be with you this Lord's Day together together for worship. Happy Labor Day weekend. If any of you are in town um, visiting from out of town, welcome. If this is your first time at Emmanuel, we're glad that you're here. Again, my name is David. As Amy said, I'm the director at Memorial Drive Ministries, one of Emmanuel's mission partners in the city, and my wife and I and our kids have been a part of this community for, um, I think, coming up on eight years or so, so a long time. Um, I must confess, when I said yes to preach on this date many moons ago, I didn't know it would be the day we were announcing uh, Amy as the new rector, um, which is amazing news and that I'm so thrilled about. Um, It feels to me like there should be bells and trumpets and uh, the bishop should be preaching to you, and instead you're getting uh, Emmanuel's B-list guest preacher up here, so we'll see if I can uh, do the occasion justice. But um, nevertheless, uh, I think Jesus in today's text, has some special words for us that actually really fit um, the moment really, really well. And so let's take a look um, together in uh, uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 16, starting at the 21st verse. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world to forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay everyone for what has been done. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God. Through the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ, you show us your love. You rescue us from evil. You redeem all of creation. Teach us what it means to follow Christ closely. Give us grace that we might learn to lose our life for your sake, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves for the needs of others, and in so doing, to find ourselves to find our true selves, to find life with you. Plant the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ in our minds, on our lips, and in our hearts. Lord, we need your wisdom and your strength. We need the transformative power of your spirit for all of this. So feed us now, we ask. Feed us on your word and at the table that more and more we may be a community that embodies what it means to follow your son in this time and in this place. It's in the name of the one who bore the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So in so many ways, it's a new day in the life of this congregation. A new rector means a new chapter is uh, going to be written and the kind of future lies open before us. Uh, We have to Admit it's been a rocky few years, not going to lie, right? We've had, uh, since at least March 2020, uh, this congregation's been through a lot, so, so, so much. Um, But the Spirit of God has been so good to us and faithful to us and held us 
together. And now we're kind of turning a corner to begin writing the next chapter. And there's, it's appropriate and right to have these feelings that um, we'll be better able to discern together what the Spirit of the Lord is doing in our midst. We may have more clarity about our mission, more stability about our methods. Our community momentum will kind of swell, right? Um, and these are all good things, Lord willing. They will be a part of our story. But let's think together about the disciples in our story today. So too, the disciples in our text this morning felt like they were turning a corner. You might remember Amy's sermon last week and Peter's confession of faith. Jesus had asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter had said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, ding, 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 you got it. That's right. Um, he, He gives Peter some of the warmest words of affirmation and blessing that Jesus will say anywhere in the Gospels. He says, this is the correct answer about my identity. He gives Peter a new name. And so it feels like this turning point in the story of the Gospel of Matthew. The disciples now know the identity of their leader, and the future kind of lies open before them. And you can imagine already the disciples, their kind of expectations and their agendas begin to kind of bubble up. Their hopes for the future and what this is going to mean. But then Jesus reveals to them a kind of unexpected path forward that they're going to be called to travel down. Jesus begins to tell the disciples that he must suffer at the hands of the authorities and be killed and then on the third day be raised to life. This is actually the first place in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus predicts his suffering and death to the disciples. And so Peter takes him off to the side, kind of takes him away and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? We're looking for stability here. We're looking for clarity. We're looking for good things, momentum here, community momentum, right? And, and maybe even we're looking for a smidge of kind of glory, power, a little bit of respectability here. Can we like polish the marketing on this a little bit, Jesus, right? And Jesus is having none of it. None of it. Last, last week, right, at Peter's confession, Jesus gives those words of, tremendous blessing and affirmation. But here, Jesus gives the harshest rebuke he gives anywhere in the Gospels. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're getting in front of me, get behind me, and then calls him Satan. And then says, you have your mind not on divine things, but on human things. You're doing the opposite of what the divine is working for. And he calls him a scandalon in Greek a scandal, which is like a stumbling block or even like a temptation. You're tempting me away from my mission. These are harsh words. Why is Jesus so kind of desperately going on the attack against these words of Peter? Why is this so important to Jesus? What does Jesus want his disciples and us to see? In 1937, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Christian pastor and scholar uh, whose life would actually end up being taken by Nazism, he wrote a book called Nach Folge. That's my German for you for the day. Uh, That's as good as it gets. I don't speak German, but uh, Nach Folge. And that means to follow after. To follow after. And it became, in its English translation of the title, this was the cost of discipleship. That word discipleship. And this is in Emmanuel's vision statement, too, that Eric already mentioned this morning. Disciples of Jesus seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. Disciples, discipleship. That's what this is all about. And Jesus addresses his words that we're looking at today. If anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, 
And then Jesus says three things I want to lift up for us. And so I think as we turn a page in the life of this congregation, this church, I think these scripture teaches us three things we must hear, embrace, and hold fast to. These are our kind of like foundational marching orders from Jesus if we are to be disciples in this time and this place. Jesus says, lose your life to find it, take up a cross, deny yourself and follow me. Lose your life to find it, take up a cross, deny yourself and follow me. Let's start with lose your life to find it. I think um, of each of these sentences and these uh, verses that I, I spent time with as I prepared for the sermon, I think this was the one I actually spent the most time pondering And the reason for that is it's kind of a paradox, right? Jesus kind of throws out a paradox to lose your life. Uh, You're going to find it, right? To save your life, you're going to have to lose it. Um, That sounds almost esoteric. What's he getting at? Kind of guru-y, right? Like, what what are we saying? What is Jesus getting at? And as I sat with this verse to try to help myself try to understand it, I, I began to ask myself, who would this sentence make sense to? Whose life circumstances would make this sentence those who want to save their life will lose it, makes sense. And I realized it would make perfect sense to a refugee, someone who has had to flee from one condition in the world and seek a better condition elsewhere, someone who has made the choice to flee from one condition in the world in search of another. Memorial Drive Ministries, where I'm the director, is just down the street in Clarkston. And Clarkston's been the site of refugee resettlement for decades, Um, so much so it's become known as the Ellis Island of the South. These are people from all over the world who have fled danger, violence, war, and most specifically, persecution. And they've been admitted to the U.S. to begin rebuilding their lives. And as I thought about my friends in Clarkson, I realized to save your life, you have to lose it could almost be the motto of refugee experiences. I think of a Kurdish refugee from Turkey I knew. Um, He had been a lawyer in his home country until his legal advocacy work uh, and his political opinions got him into hot water with the powers that be, and he fled persecution and sought asylum here in the U.S. And uh, here in the U.S., his legal credentials meant nothing, nothing at all. And it was my job to meet with this individual and try to help him find work. And I remember he was driving for Uber at the time, and I remember meeting with him, and I said, you know, maybe we can look at some paralegal jobs. Maybe we can find some kind of avenue, get you a little closer. And he said to me, no, no, I can't do it. I can't get that close to something I love so much and not be able to actually practice. And I remember, I remember it so distinctly in my head because he said, that would be like a, a fighter pilot being offered a job as a bus driver. It's just not the same thing, and I can't pretend that it will be. He had lost his life to save his life. He had lost good things to save his life. I think of an Afghan man I know. Um, He and his family fled Afghanistan during the fall of Kabul, and he told me that his brother fled around the same time, his brother and his brother's family, and they had made it to Spain. And when the Taliban took control of the central bank in Afghanistan, that meant that his brother lost his entire life savings. The things he had worked for over the years of his past, the dreams and hopes he had for his future, was gone in an instant. The community that raised him, that he had had to leave, so much of his life was gone. But he had saved his literal life and the life of his family for the chance to rebuild. In losing his life, he also found it. Jesus is saying that's the same kind of situation you and I face in discipleship. 
there is a certain kind of life we have to turn our back on and move in a different direction. We have to flee from one condition in the world in search of another condition. We are called to flee from a certain selfish way of being and join ourselves instead to Christ's way of being, to flee from self-absorbed patterns of this world and look instead to the pattern of the cross. Even if it costs us everything, even if it costs us good things, we're called to run from self-promotion and learn instead to be cross-bearers. Cross-bearers. And that leads us to that second thing that Jesus says. Take up your cross. The cross. Look what's behind me. Look behind me for just a moment. Every company would put their brand up there. That's not what's up there. It's a cross. It's not a brand designed to make us into consumers. It's a cross designed to make us into cross bearers. This church joins with the tradition of centuries, even millennia of the church, who put a cross at the center of the worship space. And perhaps for us, the cross can look sanitized, clean, kind of spiritual, maybe a nice piece of jewelry. But we have to remember the cross was an instrument of torture and capital punishment used by an imperial power against minorities and colonies being oppressed and exploited. We have to start there. That's the reality and how this would have been heard in the first century. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's saying, join me in my trauma, join me in my public humiliation, join me in my execution. It's a shocking message. It was designed to be a shocking message. This is not Jesus saying anything that will justify subjugation. Far from it. This is actually Jesus laying out a strategy of resisting oppression for the sake of others, not unlike the nonviolence tactics used by the civil rights history in this city's recent past. And we don't have time to get into all of it, but in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus lays out a few strategies for doing that kind of thing. But suffice it to say, these verses can never be used to justify abuse of any kind. That said, Jesus, at the same time, is also decidedly not trying to make his message more palatable. He's not trying to lower the bar to entry. He's trying to raise it even higher. He's not trying to make the life of discipleship look easy or accessible or glorious or a path to an ego boost. And I think sometimes in subtle ways, the church can like telegraph to those considering becoming Christian, look at the advantages of the Christian life, right? And even subtly, we can all begin to think, yes, following Jesus is going to make me healthy, wealthy, and wise, Why else would we do it, right? And like Peter, we think following Jesus is going to be a call to something that might be at least a little bit glamorous, powerful, socially advantageous. And Jesus is just saying, that's not the message here. That's not what this is or what this is about. Alan Culpepper, a New Testament scholar, writes this in his commentary on Matthew on these verses. Facing the fate that lies before him in Jerusalem, Jesus warns the disciples that following him will require the same commitment from them. Disciples are called to embrace the same mission and walk the same road as the one they revere and follow. The demand is stark. One must either deny self or deny Christ. What is required is nothing less than an alternative form of life, not oriented towards the self, but made possible only in union with Christ. Bonhoeffer, in that book, Cost of Discipleship, he summarizes this passage by saying this, when Jesus calls us, he bids us come 
and die. This is a reminder to all of us that those who follow Christ at our core, we're not consumers here. We aren't here to get a product. We're not coming to church to get a spiritual pick-me-up. We're not purchasing something to get our spiritual needs met. We're not coming to church because it helps our mental health so we can be more productive at work tomorrow. We're called here by the living Christ to join our lives to Christ's self-giving life and to join our deaths to Christ's self-giving death in the hopes that we and the neighbors we love might rise with him on the last day to eternal life and glory. This is not trivial stuff. This is stuff of eternal significance. This is the sacrificial work of churching that we're called to in this time and place. Discipleship is all about the cross and not just what the cross does for us, not just something that Christ suffered that we then get to escape from. The cross becomes the blueprint and the pattern for all of our lives. The cross becomes the pattern for how we speak to one another, how we think to one another, how we relate to one another, what our family lives look like, what our social calendar looks like, what our political life looks like. The cross is going to be the reality that defines who we are as a people. This is the character, the reasoning, the decision-making, all of that that we inhabit to be defined by the cross. And the good news of the gospel is absolutely good news of healing and wholeness. But the call of discipleship flips that and asks you to begin to see yourself on the other side of that equation, offering your life for the healing and wholeness of someone else, not just looking for your own. At the seminary I went to, um, the dean of the seminary would often uh, tell us that when she faced difficult decisions in the administration of the seminary, she would approach a professor of New Testament there um, that she respected and wanted his opinion. And every time, she said, every time I asked him for advice, he wouldn't tell me what to do, but he would say, discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. It's all about discipleship. And she heard in that, both for the decisions I make about the people I have influence with, it's about their discipleship. And even as I learn to make those decisions, I too am being discipled. Can we have that same mentality? Discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. It's all about discipleship. So Jesus has said, to find your life, you must lose your life. Take up your cross. Lastly, deny yourself and follow me. Some of you are thinking, Lent was a few months ago. Deny yourself, that's more a Lent thing. Uh, But here, Jesus is saying, no, deny yourself is the essence of the Christian walk. Christ is in the lead, not us. This is a quote from um, another preacher and seminary professor, Tom Long, who also wrote a commentary on Matthew. This is is a a lengthy quote, but hang with me, because I think this summarizes most everything I'm trying to say better than I could say myself. Crosses are not picked up as a means for personal self-actualization, career advancement, financial stability, self-expression, sexual fulfillment, or living your best life now. Crossbearers forfeit the game of power in the first inning. Crossbearers are dropouts in the school of self-promotion. Crossbearers pick up crosses like their Lord because of the needs of others. When the curtain of the kingdom is pulled back, suffering on behalf of or in solidarity with others may look to the world like pouring your life down the bottomless drain of human need. But in the kingdom of God, it is the very means of seeing God's good triumph and becoming fully alive. 
Although the cross may look painful and foolish to the world, bearing a cross counts in the kingdom of heaven. It counts to God. A life spent soothing the pain of the sick, caring for children in need, hammering nails in houses for those without shelter, sharing bread with the hungry, visiting the imprisoned and detained, welcoming the newcomer and stranger. Denying oneself may seem like a squandered life in the economy of a self-centered age. But in the storehouse of heaven, it is a lavish treasure. I can't think of anything this city needs more than a community of crossbearers. Little Christs. I forget exactly what it was, but I went on a walk with a friend not too long ago, and he was telling me about it. It was either a book he read or um, a movie he, film he watched. Um, but as all good stories begin in Alien Visits Earth. Uh, and so this alien doesn't know anything about Earth, doesn't get what human society is like, knows nothing, starting from scratch. So the alien kind of disguises himself and then makes a friend, makes a human friend. So this alien and the human friend are walking around, and the human friend has to explain everything, right? And so they arrive at a city. They're, in, they're living city life. They end up in a city. And so this alien is seeing the hustle and the bustle, the people everywhere, the busy crosswalk, the elevator jam-packed with people, um, the apartment complex going up, the crowded subway. And he asks his friend, why do they live so close to each other? Is it because they love one another? And his friend thinks for a moment and sadly shakes his head and says, no. It's because they can make money off each other. And it's a poignant story because of what if a city was a place where we lived here because we loved one another, right? Think of the most popular kind of television series, too, that you can think of in the past 10 years. Uh, I recently read a Game of Thrones novel, and my wife started watching House of Cards, uh, which I don't really recommend either one of those things. But in, we kind of met recently and just not met. I mean, we like went on a date night or something, and we were talking about <laughs> it was a meeting. It was a formal meeting me and my wife had. Uh, and we were just kind of comparing notes on this experience, right? Both this novel and this, uh, this story that has captured the imagination of, I mean, the country, they, it, they depict, both of them, a world that's just hungry for power. It's a race of self-promotion, self-advancement. It's a kind of civil war setting where it's tribe against tribe, family against family, individual against in individual, in an in a ambitious quest for money, prestige, power, authority. And you know what happens in those worlds? People get crushed. People get crushed, and it may make for great action and intrigue and drama but, and racy television. When people live like that, it turns the world into hell. And the world is like that. Why are, why are those shows so gripping? Because people see something on the screen and they say, that's in my heart. That's in the hearts of the people around me. What if in a city like that, in a world like that, there was a community of cross bearers who somehow got empowered by God to live a different way rather than orienting their whole life around self-promotion and advancement, their ambition, how to build their home equity, whatever else, they were too busy following Jesus to care about any of that stuff and to begin to pick up crosses for the needs of others, maybe even especially for the needs of those who this city crushes. Hmm? 
You see that beautiful vision Jesus is giving to the church, to the disciples? This is the path of discipleship. I hope at this point, you're probably feeling at least two things. One, my hope is that you see that beautiful vision. You say, yes, the city needs that, and I want to be a part of it. And I suspect if you're anything like me, this is a bit overwhelming. Who's up to this task, really? Who's up to this task? Pouring one's life out like this? I mean, I have trouble getting my three-year-olds to school on time, (laughs) right? We're already anxious. We're already overwhelmed. We're already burdened. We're already exhausted. How can we live this? Where's the power for this come from? There's a Sarah Groves song called When the Saints that came on as I was doing um, sermon prep. She writes these words. When I'm weary and overwrought with so many battles left unfought, I see the shepherd Moses in the Pharaoh's court. I hear his call for freedom for the people of the Lord. I see Paul and Silas in the prison yard. I hear their song of freedom rising to the stars. I see the long, quiet walk along the underground railroad and Harriet awakening to the value of her soul. I see the young missionary and the angry spear and his family returning with no trace of fear. I see the long, hard shadows of Calcutta nights. And I see the sisters of charity standing by the dying man's side. I see a young girl huddled on the brothel floor and a man with a passion for justice coming to kick down the door. I see the man of sorrows and his long, troubled road. I see the cross on his shoulders. And I see my easy load. Oh, when the saints go marching in, I want to be one of them. Don't you want to be one of them? Listen, they were fed at the same table you're fed at here. They were nourished with the same thing that's on offer to you today here. Christ asks in our text this morning, what would you give in exchange for your life? Think with me for a moment. What did Christ give in exchange for your life? Christ gives it all here. Christ's body, Christ's blood poured out, shed, given for you. So you can find here wholeness, wellness, so that you can find healing and also a pattern for how to live your life in self-giving for others. Look here for how to deny yourself. Look here how to take up your cross. Look here for how to lose your life. And then look here also for how to find it. Let's pray together. Lord, make us channels of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is sadness, ever joy. Grant that we may not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love with all our hearts. For it's in giving that we receive, it's in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it's in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.